Scripture comes from Luke chapter 8, verse 22. On one of those days, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got in the boat and they set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and there was calm. Where is your faith, he asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for stories like this, where we encounter uh, your power and your authority over the storms, and where we learn how we can trust you in the middle of them all. And so, Lord, may your spirit begin to work uh, or continue with the work it's already doing. Uh, may we be attentive uh, to what you are teaching us today. May we be listening for your spirit to speak into our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I love the way this text starts. It was one of those days. The NASB, which is a more uh, literal translation, that's how it starts. It, in Greek it reads, day one those. Kind of like one of those days. Have you ever had one of those Days, you know, when uh, it starts out normal and fine, you're doing something that you always do a hundred billion times, and then all of a sudden the bottom drops out from you. Maybe it's the car that falls apart on the way to work. Uh, everything's okay until the doctor calls. Everything's fine until storms roll in, until the breakup happens, until the layoff notice, until the foreclosure, and until the divorce, until the loss. It was one of those days until everything wasn't, and it was turmoil. Have you ever had one of those days? I've had a few. Here's one. And they come out of nowhere. So I used to do a video and graphics, and I was sitting in my office one day, and I had one of those offices that was really dark, and I loved it, and it had all the moody lights. That's, that, that helps, right? So I was in there. I was doing my work, and I thought everything was going fine. I had good product, clients were happy, things looked great, and then I get this meeting notice to walk into my boss's office later in the week, didn't even think anything twice, it happens, okay, great, walk in there, it's Friday, I should have known, it's Friday, and I sit down, and all of a sudden it's, well, you're, you're not going to be working here anymore, and didn't say it that nicely, but this is what happened. One of those days, everything was going fine, and then all of a sudden, there's chaos. We've had these days, and, and the truth is, we will continue to have these days. There's calm. You sit across, you're doing something you do a hundred times, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a storm comes rolling in, and it disrupts everything. And what we learn in this text is no matter the size or the duration, or the warning you get from these storms. They're always scary. They're always fearful. However, when we have an encounter with Christ, like the disciples did in the boat that day, these powerful storms might shake us, but each one of them, because of Christ, will bring us to a place where we'll learn more about God's character, we'll learn more about God's peace, and then we become people who are able to rest with confidence in the middle of those storms. 
in the story today, we're looking at, there's three contrasts that we see, and they're written down in your bulletin. There's the contrast of when, when, Christ, when we are fearful, we have Christ's presence. And then there's the contrast, anybody have a bulletin? I'm blanking on my own outline. Here we are. Uh, there's the, our fear, and it's contrasted with His presence. There's our attempts, and it's contrasted with His power. And there's our doubts, and they're contrasted with His faith. You need a pen. Uh, I'm kidding, you're fine. The story's familiar. Those three contrasts are, are what we can find in the middle of our storms. The story's familiar to us. I grew up in church. I remember the flannel graph of Jesus laying in the back of the boat and the disciples freaking out and the big pretend waves they had. I grew up with this story. So reading this, it's, it's kind of like, oh yeah, Jesus calms the storm. Earlier in the book, we see Jesus is teaching. He's He's, he's exercised the demons in some places, and, and he's casting demons out. He's relieving people of oppression. Now he's talking about seeds, and then he's the lampstands, and he's, he's building up a story, and Luke is showing us very carefully who this Jesus is. He's done some powerful things, and now Jesus says, let's go over to the other side, which shouldn't be a big deal, right? These people that he's with, his disciples are experienced fishermen. This is their job. This is what they've done a hundred times. You want to go over to the other side of the lake? Sure, let's go. They can do this journey with their eyes closed. And Jesus did. He fell asleep. And so he's in the back. He has complete trust. We're going to get to the other side. The Sea of Galilee, where they were, wasn't a big lake. But the Sea of Galilee is positioned in a weird area. For those who have been there, I've only seen it on maps. But... The Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. On all sides are mountains. To the east, there's a very steep hill, and it goes up, and then it's desert. To the west, you have the valley, and then you have the sea. All this means is that it's it's perfect place for some really interesting weather. How many of you have been to Lake Powell or Lake Havasu? And there, okay, I have. Thank you, Kyle. You and I know. And so we have... The, on these lakes, the way they are, they can position, they position in a way that storms can just pop up out of nowhere. And the water goes from calm to choppy in a second. This is what happens here on the Sea of Galilee. The warm air, the cold air meet, and all of a sudden there's a storm in the middle of it. Wind over water and Sea of Galilee being a very small body of water making a lot of waves. The whole, the whole lake becomes one big giant slushy pool and it's wavy and there's no outlet for it and it just builds and builds how many of you made wave pools in your swimming pool at some point thank you yes and it just gets so chaotic because the waves have no place to go this is what the disciples were sailing on they start out in the calm of night usually they can see these storms coming but it's nighttime they can't see it And then it's there. It descends upon them. It says in verse 23, But as they were sailing, he fell asleep, and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped in danger. They were afraid, but in their fear, they learned about his presence. For being fishermen, the Jewish people were not great at at seafare. They were not great at being uh, sailors. That was something that the Egyptians and the Phoenicians were good at, the Jewish people were more land dwellers. For them, 
The sea began to symbolize all the dark powers of evil and evil's origin. That's what lived in the sea. Monsters. It was every week, shark week for them. They did not want to go out in the water. They stayed away from it. In the book of Daniel, we read that the sea is where the monsters come from. In the book of Revelation, monsters and all sorts of evil come out of the sea. What the writers are doing in both of those books are saying that evil, there is a place for evil, and it is the sea. It was a poetry. Not all evil lives in the ocean. Trust me, it's fun when you surf it. But not everything evil, but for them, it was mysterious and dark, and they were afraid of it. So, you have two things going for them. They were surprised by a storm. It was the middle of the night. They had no idea how long it was going to last, where it was coming from, or that it was coming in the first place. And then, when you're convinced that everything evil comes from the water, now you're going to be swimming in said water, you would be afraid. Even if you didn't believe that all evil comes from water, if you're in the middle of a storm in a boat and you're surprised, and now you're thinking of drowning, you would be scared too. But we look at this. We look at this text, and even growing up with it, I've always thought, oh, those silly disciples. Why were they so afraid? And 2,000 years later, we play like a, a, a type of armchair disciple, and we think, I wouldn't have been afraid. I would have been just fine. I would have slept too. Truth is, we would have been scared out of our pants if we put ourselves in their shoes. They were afraid. Their lives are at stake. They were unprepared. It was looking like certain death. There's a little bit of fear there. And we judge them, but really, we shouldn't. There's nothing wrong at all with being afraid. Fear is normal. Fear is where we get our fight or flight from. Fear is why we still exist in some, in some places. We run when we're afraid, when we should. Or the adrenal glands kick in and we learn to protect ourselves because of fear. Fear is completely normal. The disciples are completely normal. It's not bad that they were afraid. What's not normal is that the person who's in the boat with them was sleeping. How can someone sleep in a storm that hard? Yet, when they look back, Jesus is sleeping. And what also isn't normal is that the person in the back of the boat sawing logs while they're riding in their boat is the one who can calm the storm. And we get on them thinking, well, they should have known it was Jesus. They were just meeting this Jesus guy. They're three chapters in, or if it's in my Bible, it's three pages into a relationship. They don't know much about him at all. Yes, he can cure sickness. Uh, there's been some signs. He's a great teacher. He has authority. He's shown that. But they don't know how far that authority goes yet. So before we get all on these disciples about how they shouldn't have been fearful, let's cut them some slack. They didn't know that this Jesus that they were following was as powerful as he was. They didn't really understand, and they won't for a few chapters in Luke's Gospel. They won't really understand who he is and the authority that he has. That's why they're having these fresh encounters with this Jesus that they've never even met, and they're realizing how strong he really is. Their reaction of fear isn't that unnormal from what we see in Scripture's. Fear is all over the scriptures. 
Luke is being very careful here and he's tying the story of Jesus to the story in the Old Testament of the Exodus. And now you have Jesus on a sea and in the Exodus in chapter 14 you have the people of Israel next to the sea. They were trapped. They, they were on the shores of the Red Sea. Remember where all evil comes from? That's where they believed it back then. All evil comes from the sea and they're stuck on the edge of it and here comes Pharaoh's army ready to capture them. And in Exodus 14, it says, Pharaoh approached the Israelites, and the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching towards them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. Would you say they were fearful? I would. Terrified's a good word for it. Either way, they're going to die. Fearful. It's in Scripture. People are afraid. Then the people of Israel said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? That sounds very hopeful. What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Doesn't sound like they're brewing with confidence, right? They're afraid. We would be too. Let's not call them scaredy cats quite yet. I'd say that they were afraid and, and the disciples were afraid, but they all learned something. The Israelites in Exodus... They weren't real sure who this God yet God was yet either. They'd heard about him. They might have worshipped him. They've known about him. They kind of knew their story. But they hadn't had an encounter with him yet. They hadn't known him yet. They hadn't seen him move. And they have no idea. Like the disciples, they're learning. And so, Moses says to the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm. That's another thing. They just met Moses. He'd been gone for 40 years. Now he's back and he says, let's go. And they all follow him. So now they're learning about Moses. And he says, stand, stand firm. Don't be afraid. The deliverance of the Lord will, will bring you today. The Egyptians you see, we will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Moses himself is a little bit new to this relationship with God. He's seen some things, but he doesn't know how far God's power goes yet. He is still learning, and he's putting on a strong face because in this next, in this next verse, I think it's kind of funny, Moses says to them, be strong, be strong, be strong, and then it's like he goes and hides behind the rock, and the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying to me? So he says, be strong, and then he turns around and goes, God, what the heck? What are you... What are you going to do here? And God says, go to the sea, raise your staff, stretch your hand out over the sea, divide the water so the Israelites can cross through on dry ground. And then the angel of the Lord in verse 19, who began to travel in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. A pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them, between them and the armies of Egypt. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness on one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. And then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong wind from the east into dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through on dry ground. In so many ways, there's a lot of similarities between what Jesus is doing in the back of the boat and what God was doing on the shores of Exodus. Both those people were fearful. 
both of them, in a place where they did not know what was going to happen. And Luke is tying Jesus back to this idea of God having authority and power over the elements of which you and I are so afraid of. Did you notice something in the story of the Exodus? The presence of the Lord was ahead of them. And then the presence of the Lord went behind them and sealed them off. He was protecting them. More than that, the presence of the Lord was with them the entire time. The entire time He was there. They just failed to recognize it. They were never alone. In fact, if you think of fear throughout all Scripture, if you were to do a little search, you will find that wherever there is fear mentioned, there is also a presence of God mentioned. Don't believe me? It happens in Joshua. I'll give you a couple of examples. Joshua 1.9. Moses had died. Joshua is now in charge. It's a pretty big battlefield promotion. He's dead. Moses is dead. Joshua, you're in charge. You're going to lead all these stubborn people. And Joshua's going, not me. Really? And he's afraid like you would be, because that's just the normal reaction. God says this, Have I not commanded you? Be strong, be courageous. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will meet you wherever you go. There's the fear, normal, but it's met with the presence of God. There's the story of the Shadrach Meshach and Abednego, which is a fun story. These three guys decided to be rebels. When Nebuchadnezzar said, fall and worship me, they kept standing and they would not worship. And so they were punished with a fiery furnace so hot that when they would take off the lid to the furnace, anybody who took the lid off would be burned to death. That's quite a bonfire. Speaking of barbecues. So, that was so bad. Sorry. So they're thrown in, and as they were in there, they're walking around, and the king Nebuchadnezzar looks there and says, didn't we put just three people in? Why do I see four? In the middle of their storm, I think they were probably afraid too. What do we find? The presence of God. He says in verse 25, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea what he was seeing, and that's all he knew how to relate it to. That looks like God. In the middle of their fear, we see a presence. David writes about it, Psalm 23, 4. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear, fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Isaiah says it this way. Don't fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am the Lord your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What we see is in the middle of the storms, and when those storms come, and they will, it's not if, it's only a matter of time, we're going to be afraid. Totally normal to be afraid. The key is not to be controlled by that fear. Instead, we have faith that we're not alone in the middle of it. The person with us is the one who can control the fear. The person with us is the one who never leaves us. There's no doubt in my mind that many of us are facing some storms today. Many of us are walking through some uncertainty. 
but the encouragement that we have because of this text, because of the entire story of Scripture that shows God's movement towards us at every time. The encouragement that we have is that we're never alone. One of Jesus' names, and we only focus about it on Christmas, but really we should do it more, is Emmanuel. Strictly translated, it means the with us God, the God that is with us. What that tells me is our God is powerful. Our God never leaves us, never forsakes us. Our God intervenes, our God strengthens, our God fights, our God surrounds us. He hems us in from front and back, as Psalm 139 says. Our God heals, our God comforts, our God does not leave us stranded when the times get hard. Is it hard to believe? Sometimes it is, because sometimes those waves get very, very tall. I've experienced it in 2008. We were in California. Our house burnt down. Was it hard? Extremely. Did we lose? We lost everything. But were we alone? Not at all. Carrie and I had experienced uh, miscarriages uh, before Judah and after Judah. and, And thankfully, she's pregnant now, but we had miscarriages all along. Were we fearful? Absolutely. Were we alone? No. We had comfort from our God. We knew that Jesus was walking through us. We had his very presence with our communities around us at every time. We were never alone. When we sat in the ICU, the very night my dad passed, very difficult. Was it hard? Yes. Was I scared? Absolutely. My dad was one of my best friends. But we were never, ever alone. I don't, I don't know what we're walking into. I don't know what you're walking into. I don't know what storm is coming your way. But I do know this. You won't be alone in it. Jesus is in the boat with you. The Spirit of God, like the people in Exodus, is right in front of you, in front of you and behind you, sealing you off, even when you're surrounded by your biggest fears. Luke says it this way, they were there and so they realized Jesus is sleeping. They're doing all they can and Luke says this is what they did next. The disciples went and they woke him and they said, Master, we're going to drown. Have you felt that way with your storm before? I am not going to make it out of this one. And they realized that Jesus is still sleeping. Jesus was in the stern in verse 38, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, Don't you care if you're drowned? That's how Mark says it, the same story. They woke him up. Jesus and I have something in common. I I realize this. We're both really, really hard sleepers. I've slept through earthquakes. I've slept through uh, uh, Carrie abusing me, trying to wake me up, screaming at me. I've slept through Judas crying a whole lot. I've slept through roommates that have annoying alarms that hook up to guitar amps. Uh, uh, His name was Vince. He was crazy. Uh, I'm a strong sleeper, but Jesus is the same. He's sitting here sleeping through a storm, uh, and and the disciples go, and they wake him up, and it's probably either he was real tired or he was real strong, and he's saying, Jesus, don't you care that we're sleeping or that we're drowning, and you're, you're here sleeping? I imagine the disciples going a little frenzied here. They were doing all that they can to keep the boat afloat, trimming sails, navigating around, bailing water as the waves come up and over the rail. And then they look back and he's doing nothing. Come on, man, wake up. What are you doing? 
But it's here where we learn this. Not only do we have God's presence with us at all times, what we learn is that our attempts are always met with His power. Our attempts to bail our own selves out are always met with God's power. Look what happens. He gets up. He rebukes the wind. What it doesn't say is that he rubbed his eyes and kind of stretched. But he got up. He rebuked the wind and the raging waters and the storm subsided and it was calm. In other texts from this period in the ancient Near East, there were certain individuals that, could, uh, that said they were able to calm storms. There was Caesar, uh, there was Caligula, there was Xerxes and Apollos. They were all of these literature people that, that to make them feel better, to make them more elevated, they said, and he calmed the storm, but there was always something that they did in order to calm a storm. And so Luke, who's writing to some highly educated Roman officials is tying Jesus saying not only can he calm storms like all of these people you read about, but Jesus can calm a storm with just his voice. He doesn't need to offer a sacrifice. He doesn't need to do a dance, say a prayer, turn around three times and spit. He doesn't need to do anything like that. All he needs to do is stand up and say, stop it. He has power over these storms and everything that they're doing and all of the stuff that the disciples are up to, what they learn is that they're powerless in their attempts and in the bottom of their own selves and when they've come to the end of all they can do, they are met with His power. Luke is tying the authority of Christ here to the authority that God had in Genesis 1. How many of you remember that story? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and it says the earth was, with, was formless and empty and darkness was over the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There is another little interesting play they're doing here when the Spirit of God was over the waters. All of the evil and all of the things that comes from the water, there's a little authority move that, that uh, Abraham's doing here. and He says it is God is over them. He has authority over even those. And what does God do? He says... Let there be light. And there was light. With his voice, he brings calmness to the chaos. And then it says, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters and let waters separate from water. What did he do? With his voice, he does this. And then God said, let the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. What is Luke doing here? He's saying Jesus can calm the storms with His voice, just like God can create order from chaos with His. It's an observation that we make throughout all Scripture. If God made it, God has power over it. And we can take faith in that. Jesus wakes up. He rebukes the storm. He warns it. The word rebuke means to warn in order to prevent damage. It means to put something in its proper place. He puts order to their chaos, exactly what God was doing in Genesis 1. Luke knows what he's writing about here. God, with just his voice, is controlling the storm. In other words, God is revealing that God is master ruler over the entire universe, the sea, the stars, the weather, whatever we're going through, he has power over it. My mom was able to do that to me with her voice. Uh, we grew up in, in, a, in, a, in a Baptist church in Anaheim. And mom, when dad would sit towards the front, because mom played organ, and, so, and dad was 
uh, the youth pastor part-time, and so they would sit towards the front, but every once in a while, I got to sit with my friends Scott and David in the back row. And we'd screw around, because that's what you do in the back row. I see you. Uh, and so we'd draw pictures, we'd make notes, and then we'd start laughing. And my mom had this uncanny ability to know everything that I was doing wrong. And here's what she would do from across the room. And it was a pretty big room, bigger than this. Mom would just go like this. <clears throat> She'd just clear her throat. And I would, yes, mother. It didn't matter how noisy the place was. I could hear my mom clearing her throat. And it should snap me back into shape. In essence, this is what Jesus is doing with the storm. He gets up, he looks at it and goes, shh, I'm sleeping, leave me alone. He clears his throat and the wind and the waves obey him. We have a God that has control. We have a God that can move storms, calm them. In the middle of the fiercest ones we've ever been through, our attempts will always fall flat in the face of his power. If you want to write this passage down in Psalm 106, people, David is writing a psalm here of people who are at the end of all of their resources, and they knew it, and so what they do, they cried out, they prayed, and they waited, because we live in a world where God can and does intervene. Does it mean that we'll always get our way? No, I wish it did, but this is the tension that we sit in. We live in a broken world where sometimes God is able to move and heal and sometimes he isn't. This is the tension of God's kingdom here and God's kingdom still not yet. It's called the now and not yet and we live in the tension of that. It means that sometimes the cells continue to mutate. Sometimes we get hurt. Sometimes healing doesn't come this side of eternity. Sometimes houses burn and cars wreck, and, some, and when those happen, even though it hurts, there's still a promise of his comfort. We're still not alone. The comforting of his spirit is with us. But in the midst of that storm, we have the ability to cry out. We have the ability to ask and be comforted by this God who is always with us and never leaves us. Moses cried out. David cried out. Paul cried out. And when we do so, you and I step into a long list of pretty important people who cry out for God to move. It's, we're not the first ones to do it. We won't be the last ones to do it. Moses prayed, and then he raised a stick. Elijah called down fire. David still had to swing his sling. It doesn't mean that we don't do things. It doesn't mean that we don't act. But when we do act, when we do do things, it's with God's power, not on our own, because when we do it by ourselves, it will always fall flat. Our attempts are always meant by His power. We have a part to play in this. We have things to do in the story. It doesn't mean we just sit and wait. We ask, we move, we're empowered, and then we go. But our attempts and all of our energies and everything that we do pales in comparison to Jesus just looking at the storm and going, <clears throat> excuse me, be quiet. His power always comes at the end of our attempts because when he is with us, we learn the truth of Psm 46.10 where it says, be still 
know that I am God. I am here. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. The problem that you and I have is we can understand a little bit of his presence. The problem that you and I have is that we seldom really ask. We never really think of stopping and asking God to help us. Because I've heard it, and I've even said it. A lot of times we don't even want to trouble God with our problems. Our problems are so small compared to what's happening everywhere else, right? That's what the excuse is. But that's not what we should be doing. Notice the disciples went and they woke up Jesus. Would they have made it through the other side of the lake? Probably, or Jesus wouldn't have been asleep. They would have made it, but they went and woke up Jesus. Did Jesus scold them for waking him up? I would have. I don't like being woken up. No, Jesus doesn't scold them. He doesn't yell at them. We read that part into the text. He rebukes the ocean. He rebukes the sea, but he doesn't rebuke the disciples. He rebukes them, and then he turns and says, and asks them a question. It wasn't a yelling question. It wasn't a shame on you question. It was a question that was teaching them. He simply says, where, where is your faith? rebukes the ocean, yells at the ocean, puts order to the chaos, and turns to his disciples. And I kind of see it as a, as, a, as a tender question that Jesus usually asks his people. Where is it? What do you have faith in? Where is your faith, he asks the disciples. Oftentimes in our storms, we never really start with prayer. We never really ask for help. We try and muscle through it on our own. And Jesus can essentially ask us the same questions when we do the same things. Where's your faith? If your faith is always found in what you can do, then that's a pretty lousy foundation because your attempts will always fall flat. But if your faith is in the one who can control the storms with just the sound of his voice, that is the bedrock of your life. Then you'll be able to withstand any storm that comes your way. Because when we pray... When we go to God first, our doubts are met with His faith. We have doubts. That's normal. Doubts, there's nothing wrong with having doubts. Jesus never really condemns people for doubting. Instead, in their middle of the doubts, He calls them into a closer relationship. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, sends his, His disciples to go find Jesus. Why? Because he was having doubts. John the Baptist is the one who baptized Jesus. Saw the dove come down. Heard the voice. Totally fine. He, he, he was convinced. And then later on, he said, I don't know if this was right. Does Jesus condemn John the Baptist? No. All he says to his followers was, tell John what's going on here. Tell him the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. The dead are risen and have him believe. What does that sound like? It sounds like an invitation. He doesn't keep him at arm's length because he doesn't, he doesn't have it all figured out. No, he says, you don't have it all figured out. Great. Come, explore, move through your doubts. The, the woman at the well says, uh, are you really the son of God? Really? And Jesus says, take a drink, find out. In the middle of her doubts, what does Jesus do? He meets her there 
right in the middle of them, doesn't solve them, but invites her in, invites John into a relationship with him in face of their doubts. Thomas is the most famous one. He doubted that Jesus was really risen from the dead, even though Jesus is standing right in front of him. He goes, eh, doubt it. I have friends like that. I'm like that sometimes. Doubt it. But what's he do? Kind of lifts up his shirt and says, Thomas, I know you have doubts. Touch my side. See for yourself. We use doubt as an excuse to not engage in God's power. We use doubt as an excuse to say that he's never present with us. We use doubt to keep us at bay, but really doubt is the beginning of your faith. Faith isn't having all the answers. Faith is moving even though you don't have the answers. Faith is trusting in the face of your doubts. Don't let your doubts stop your faith. The nature of faith is moving even when you have doubts. So you have doubts that you're going to make it through this storm. I don't know what storm you're in, but you might have doubts. Faith is saying, God is still with me, even though I might not see where he's moving right now. God is still with me in the middle of this. God never condemns anybody for having doubt. Gideon laid how many fleeces out to make sure that God was really telling him what to do. Moses had to have a miraculous, put his hand inside of his shirt, come out with leprosy, put his hand back, come out with non-leprosy. And then that wasn't enough. He had to throw a stick on the ground and be a sign. So doubt was normal. It was fine. Elijah has doubt. He's one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Jesus asked them, where is your faith? Not why do you doubt? And it's a good question to ask. It's not a rebuke. It's a question. It's a teachable moment. Because here's what he's asking. Are you relying in yourself? Or are you relying on me? It's a question we should really ask ourselves. We might not use the same words, but the question is, where, are your, where is your faith? Is your faith in that uh, you are the captain of your own ship? Then you're going to live a life striving in the middle of fear. You're going to fear like you feel like you're drowning at every moment because there are a ton of forces that are outside of your control. Or are you going to have faith in the one who can bring you through storms? If you have faith in the God that is able, then it's a different story. It's not a Pollyanna, everything is green, sound of music story. It's the bedrock story of a confidence that leads to something else. Rest. It's the bedrock of peace. The disciples learned that day the same thing that you and I need to learn every day. In the middle of the night, when we face a storm, when we're woken up because of something, we can have peace in the middle of it. We can rely in the one that has power over the storm. I'm not saying that he sends storms, I'm saying that God has power over the storm that you're in. And the wind and the waves will be calm. There will be a loved, you will be loved, you will be protected, you will be cared for. And then we'll have the same response that the disciples had. Who is this guy that commands the winds and the water and they obey him? Who is this guy? And his response will be this. I'm the one who's always with you. I'm the one who's got the power. I'm the one who's, who's there you can have faith in. 
and you can rest in. I'm the one who invites you to move in the middle of your doubt. I'm the one who's going to get you through. And like he said to Moses, just sit still and watch this. Have you ever had one of those days? When you don't think you're going to make it? It's the first thing we should do. Pray. My dad, when we were, when we were just married, Carrie and I lived what, three, four miles from my parents' house and then the same from her parents' house. Carrie worked on Tuesdays, uh, Tuesday nights and my mom had a Bible study on Tuesday nights so my dad and I realized that we were just sitting home alone watching sports and so why not do that together? And so we would go and, and we'd pick a restaurant, we'd go watch whatever game was on and, and we'd sit and talk and have dinner together. He would talk to me about business and I would talk to him about whatever I was freaking out about. And uh, I would tell him my worries and fears, we'd laugh at ourselves, it was a good time. But whenever, whenever we talk about my fears, he would always have this response. And this was, this is what my dad would do. Well, and there was a long pause. And what it's scary is I find myself doing the same thing. And I was talking to my brother the other day, and he does the same thing. Well, there's a sigh. Have you prayed about it? And I go, no. <laughs> dad didn't really talk much. He'd go, seems like a good idea. We go through winds, we go through waves, and sometimes the waves are so large that you can't even get a hold of them and they're going to take you under. But let me ask you this, have you prayed about them? Or are you trying to rely on yourself? Have you taken your wind and the waves to the one who can control it? Or are you trying to get through? Do you let the wind and the waves of your doubt stop you from your faith? Or do you let the wind and the waves of your doubt take you to amazement? of who this God really is. Today, what's your storm? How are you going to get through it? I got a pretty good idea. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you that in the middle of our storms, you meet us. You don't meet us. You're with us. You never left us to begin with. So God, I pray for my friends in this room today. We know of four who are moving and they're they're facing uncertainty, God. New towns, new jobs, new lives. They're coming through a storm. Lord, there are others with sickness. There are others going through family stuff. There's personal things. There's job loss. There's change. Lord, there's some storms here. And so, Father, I pray that in these storms, your presence will be felt. Your presence will be seen, that they will be able to rest, that we will be able to rest in the middle of those storms. Because we're not alone. You empower us, you fill us, you send us, and we're not going to die here in the middle of the desert or in the middle of the storm. And Lord, may our lives be full of amazement as we look back and see how we were brought through it. We walk through on dry land. You've held us in the power of your righteous right hand. You're with us. You never forsake us. Even though we walk through the scariest valley, 
Lord, may we know that presence today. In Jesus' name.